Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, Chief Executive Officer of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we welcome you to a very, very special evening. Here in the Central Library, tonight we are kicking off a brand new lecture series on a topic that has been at the core of the history of this nation, a subject matter once even considered taboo to talk about openly and honestly in public. And this evening, we're starting a no-holds-bar conversation on race. We are very much... We are very honored to have two special guests to guide us through a dynamic conversation. Award-winning journalist and author, Gwen Eiffel. You want to come on up? And civil rights attorney, University of Law Professor, Maryland, University of Maryland Law Professor and Pratt Board member, Cheryl Ann Eiffel. We would like to thank our partners in this special lecture series and our main partner, the Open Society Institute, Baltimore. This evening truly would not have been possible without their hard work and dedication to addressing issues that we all need to face. We are also pleased to have a number of elected officials, Delegate Melvin Stooks, Senator Lisa Gladden, And one of our very special um, elected officials, Senator Paul Sarbanes. <laughs> whose wife, Christine, was a guiding force in this library and whose spirit is here tonight. We also want to recognize a person. <laughs> Mr. Sandy Rosenberg who is helping us with the Edmondson Avenue branch. He has, donated, he has donated a computer section for the library that will reopen this December. So thank you very, very much. We also have a number of very generous donors in the, in the house tonight, and we really appreciate that. More than a century ago, philanthropist Enoch Pratt gave the city of Baltimore more than a million dollars to make sure that this public library, and these are his words, remain free for all without distinction of race or color. And as you can imagine, it was the late 19th century, and creating a library for every Baltimorean, black or white, was no simple undertaking. But because of Mr. Pratt's fearlessness, his legacy has helped and benefited generations of Baltimoreans. Just several months ago, an older gentleman sent us a donation and told us that he continues to support the Pratt financially, even though he now lives in the suburbs, because the Pratt was the only place that welcomed him despite his race when he was growing up. 
His story, like countless others, is a true testament to the importance of free access to information and the ability for everyone to have knowledge. In the coming weeks, we'll have more programs, including a free screening of a movie called Stand, and we also will have more programs that will challenge you. But now for this evening, to introduce our special guest tonight is the director of Open Society Institute Baltimore, one of our favorite people, Miss Diana Morris. I'm delighted to welcome everyone here this evening and to thank you for joining us. Tonight is the second event in a year-long series that the Open Society Institute is hosting in conjunction with the Pratt Free Library, entitled Talking About Race. And I'm thrilled to be sharing the podium here with Dr. Hayden, who is not only a friend, but actually an emeritus trustee of the Open Society Institute and currently the co-chair of our Leadership Council. Dr. Hayden was part of an earlier discussion that we had, a whole series of discussions that OSI hosted at the beginning of our work here in Baltimore uh, in the early 2000 part of the century. Um, and we, she has always been very, very committed to social justice work, particularly work to try to improve uh, interracial discussion and relations. I'm delighted that we're here in this great hall of the main library, which has always been dedicated, as Carla said, to the sharing of knowledge and intellectual inquiry. It's more than fitting that we would discuss race here, where in 1882, Enoch Pratt himself said that the library would be for all, rich and poor, without distinction of race or color. These doors have always been open to all, as Carla said, and the library continues to be an institution that welcomes discussion and debate, something that our two organizations share as basic tenets. The issue of race is one that we at the Open Society Institute touch upon every day as we work to assure opportunity and justice, especially for people in the community who historically and currently experience discrimination. Our work in Baltimore focuses on three interrelated issues, drug addiction, the over-reliance on incarceration, and obstacles that impede youth from succeeding in and outside of the classroom. In a city whose population um, is 65% African American and where many of our residents live in poverty, we recognize that the issue of race is implicitly involved in everything we address. We know that we need to continually ask ourselves how historical and institutional racism affects our perceptions, our actions, and the way we live our lives and organize our communities. Now, earlier today, you may have heard that President Obama urged youth around the world to separate from the practices of their parents and to bridge divides that have been created by decades of discrimination and misunderstanding. Maybe we can take from that, and starting right here in Baltimore, we, young and old, begin the process by listening closely to each other to understand more deeply each other's experiences relating to race relations, discrimination, and opportunities, opportunities fulfilled and opportunities missed. 
According to a number of polls and uh, some, uh, we've heard that there's been a very welcome change in attitudes in the United States towards race. The election of Barack Obama has greatly altered the perception of race relations among many. The latest New York Times CBS News poll found that two-thirds of Americans now say race relations are generally good. And the percentage of African Americans who say so doubled just since last July. While this is without question encouraging, there remains many divisions among us, and they directly limit the quality and the richness of our lives economically, socially, and culturally. Many of the inequities in our city, including persistent poverty and segregation, stem from a long history of discrimination and institutional racism. The resulting segregation not only limits opportunity, but it also limits understanding. What happens? Well, we often end up talking just to ourselves. The damage many of our community members have experienced will not be erased or ameliorated simply by the election of our current president, even though this is a remarkable moment and it gives us great hope. But our country and the city of Baltimore have a long history of segregation, and we still suffer deeply from racial inequities. So tonight, we're very fortunate to, have to, to be joined by two extraordinary women, Gwen and Sherilyn Eiffel, who have thought long and hard about these issues from a variety of perspectives, and they bring to the discussion a vast array of experience. They are first cousins, and although they have engaged in many conversations over the years privately, this is the first time that they are appearing together in public. So just before I introduce these wonderful cousins, I want to let you know how the program will work this morning, uh, this evening. Uh, Sherilyn and Gwen will have a provocative discussion between themselves here on the podium. And afterwards, they'll then invite your questions. Uh, one more thing is that after the program, their books will be available for sale. So, to talk about the women in particular, Gwen Eiffel was born in New York City, the fifth of six children from an African Methodist Episcopal minister from Panama and a mother from Barbados. Uh, Gwen's father's ministry required the family to move and travel frequently. She graduated with a BA in communications from Simmons College in 1977. Gwen first interned for the Boston Herald, where I'm told she was later hired as an apology by the editors after a co-worker left a note for her that said, nigger, go home. Later, she worked for the Baltimore Evening Sun, so we're very happy to welcome her back, the Washington Post and the New York Times and NBC. And in 1999, she became moderator of PBS's Washington Week in Review. She is also the senior correspondent for the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, and she, as we all know, twice hosted the vice presidential debates in 2004 and 2008. And finally, she's also on the board of the Harvard Institute of Politics, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and the Museum of Television and Radio. Um, Gwen Eiffel's first book, uh, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama, was released on the day of Obama's inauguration. 
Now, to turn to Sherilyn Eiffel, Sherilyn received her BA from Vassar College in 1984 and her JD from New York University in 87. She is now a professor uh, at the University of Maryland School of Law and a civil rights lawyer who specializes in voting rights and political participation. She's a former assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, where she again litigated voting rights cases. And now she is a regular political and election night commentator on both national and local television and radio programs, including CNN, NBC Nightly News, ABC World News Tonight, and C-SPAN. She often provides commentary um, during the Supreme Court nominations hearings, so she is active right now, and is a regular contributor to several blogs, including The Root. Uh, Sherilyn's 2007 book, On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century, explores the continuing effects of the last two recorded lynchings in Maryland on the Eastern Shore. Sherilyn serves on the national and Baltimore boards of the Open Society Institute, so I can tell you she is an, an invaluable colleague. I'm most delighted to welcome these two wonderful women tonight and look forward to their discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to do a church thing here. If anybody has an empty seat next to them, can they just raise their hands? Because there's so many people standing who don't need to stand. There's a whole cluster in here. Make your way over. Climb over people. It's okay. We want you to be comfortable because we have a few things to say. (laughs) Hello. If you want to know the truth about Sherilyn and me, you need to know that when they left me that note that said, nigger go home, my first response was to look at it and think, I wonder who this note is for. <laughs> we were raised by these formidable men, our fathers who were brothers, who emigrated to this country from Panama. I believe strongly that immigrants who choose to uproot their lives for the betterment of their families are better patriots in many respects, and far more engaged in the world around them than a lot of the rest of us are because they made an important choice. So we have these two men. They are, I think we can say kindly, not the biggest feminist God ever put on the planet. Mm. But they raised a lot of daughters who, and some sons too, but they raised... <laughs> they raised I'm going to clean that up because some of the sons are in the room. Um, we... We raised, they raised a lot of daughters who didn't, it didn't occur to us there wasn't anything we could do. And they raised a, a generation, I, I could safely say because we were taking kids in her family and six in mine, a generation of young black people who believed that there was nothing that we could not accomplish. This was not an accident. We were raised over a span of time in different decades, different kind of generational attitudes. But both of our father were what we call race men, which doesn't mean that they went around with chips on their shoulder but is that they were aware of race and the role it played in life and the, way it would play, the role it would play in our lives, but they didn't believe in the limitations of race that so many other people would put on them. And they raised us that way. We saw it as part of our lives and part of who we are, but we didn't see it as a limitation. And to this day, the conversation we're going to have tonight isn't about the limitations of race as much as the expansiveness, the positivity, the good and the bad, but how we can have this conversation since my book came out, I've been traveling the country talking to people who have said, 
who have been come shyly out to book signings and said, you know, I want to ask you this question that I can't really ask anybody. It's because somehow, whether it's the election of Barack Obama or whatever, we seem to be in this place where people want to have a conversation. And it's not always a conversation about accusation. It's a conversation about how do we speak to one another? How do we hear one another? How do we experience each other's experiences? And as a result, over casually, as was pointed out, Sherlyn and I talk about this all the time. Our family, I mean, our Thanksgiving tables were great. We had fights like you wouldn't believe. But they were fights that were about information and about exchanging information and about how to learn from one another. And even though we don't all come out in precisely the same place, we certainly started in the same place. And part of where we started was with an understanding that curiosity was important, that newspapers were in our home, that we watched the news, that we were aware that what happened in Washington affected our lives. And so as we get older now, we can easily fall into those conversations again, even though our parents have passed, and just pick up where they left off. We like to think with a little bit more nuance, but not always. And so as a result, when I had the chance to come here tonight to chat with Sherilyn in front of people, I thought, this could be fun. Let's, try, let's just try this. So I'm going to start by asking Sherry a question. If I slip into the Sherry thing, that's how we knew her. I'm going I'm I'm to start by asking our question about where we are right this second. We are in the middle, as was inevitable after the election, and even before the election of Barack Obama, where we're having another big race conversation. Uh, A lot of people, when Barack Obama was elected, said to themselves, oh, well, it's all over now. Good. We've got ourselves a black man. We don't really have to discuss it anymore. And, of course, we knew that wasn't really true. We didn't know what the test would be, and the test turns out to be his nomination of a Latina candidate for the Supreme Court. And the interesting thing... (laughs) See, this is... She's going to do this. I'm going to go calm down, people. PBS... Civil rights lawyer. Different. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it didn't take very long. And, we, you know, we should thank Newt Gingrich for this, for, for turning it, just throwing the R word out there in the conversation and at least allowing us once again to weigh in to have the conversation about the discomfort some people have about things they don't feel they can discuss. But this one went kind of overboard right away, didn't it? Well, actually, not, not right away. First of all, Baltimore, you know I love you, and I'm so delighted that Gwen was willing to come and have this conversation. Um, I do want everyone who is um, an Eiffel by either blood or marriage, just raise your hand or give a holla. Ooh, look, folk in the back. Hey! Hey! <laughs> We're everywhere. We, we very much love and appreciate our family, and any nerves I have tonight is only because they're here. I mean, I love the rest of you, but I worry about them. Because um, they'll be reporting back. Um, and I think Gwen's really framed kind of the opening really very well. Because, um, interestingly enough, I kind of disagree that it kind of got really ugly really fast. The opening salvo, at least in my mind. Um, and, and I should preface this by saying, and Gwen's already alluded to it, that we come from two different perspectives. Gwen is a journalist. Her job is to analyze and, and in many ways be impartial. Always ask, what's the other side of this story? Um, I like to think I'm curious too, but I'm, I'm an activist and I'm unapologetic about that. So I'm, I can express kind of my own opinion about, <laughs> about what I think. And so you're going to hear that difference and, and um, hope you understand. She's trying not to get me in trouble, you I, understand. I'm, the disclaimer has been now officially uh, said. So, so the first reaction that we got to the nomination of, of Judge Sotomayor, and I, and I was actually quite disturbed by this because I did think we needed kind of 24 hours of 
recognizing a historic moment. Every time we have a historic moment, I think we should take a minute and just have it um, because, you know, it's been a long time getting to some of the places we've gotten to. Um, but even before we got to the 24-hour mark, um, we started to get discussions about whether Judge Sotomayor had the intellectual heft to um, sit on the Supreme Court. And um, we soon thereafter got an article in The Atlantic by Jeffrey Rosen, kind of all sourced anonymously, in which you know, there was this discussion about her potentially having a temper, a kind of fiery temper, uh, and you know, whether she kind of was an intellectual lightweight. Now, I think it's perfectly appropriate to, to ask that question of a Supreme Court nominee, to ask whether or not a Supreme Court nominee kind of has the intellectual heft to be on the court. But this came out pretty quickly. It came out not based on um, a particular case or anything that we could really get our hands around. It was really kind of rumor. And the willingness to kind of get that rumor out there, I felt, was, began the kind of coded language about race and gender. I mean, as I said, you know, if you have a, a Puerto Rican woman who's nominated to be on the Supreme Court, it's not surprising that people are going to say she has a fiery temper. I mean, this, this is stereotype, you know, and is she smart enough? So, you know, graduating second in the class from Princeton, you know, graduating summa cum laude from Yale Law School, editor of the Yale Law Review in the day when it was really just grades that got you on the law review. Um, not just that she was a prosecutor, but somehow what's dropped out of her bio is that she made partner in a commercial law firm where she practiced copyright law, which is, you know, like not an easy thing for anybody to do, let alone a Latina woman, you know, in the 1980s. So the willingness to kind of even start that conversation almost immediately struck me as kind of the beginning. Uh, and then it did get ugly. Um, and um, and I was actually, have to tell you, a little taken aback by how ugly it got, you know, so quickly. Not because of what Rush Limbaugh said, because that's what he does. But, you know, kind of the Newt Gingrich jumping on, it was very quick. Um, and it came, you know, from the statement that you all probably have heard by now uh, from a speech that she gave uh, in, in, at, at University of Berkeley Law School, University of California Law School at Berkeley, um, and there wasn't very much analysis of the rest of the speech. It was the willingness to take that one line and to talk about her in a way that was so extreme, someone who was a federal sitting appellate judge and who'd been nominated to the bench by the first George Bush, by the way. I thought the willingness to do that so quickly out of the gate really was laden with the race and gender piece. But here's something that, that I wasn't shocked at all by it. I was kind of relieved that it came out. I would much rather have these debates out loud than to have people having them in their homes and never have it come. They vote against somebody, but they never say why. Oh, uh, I just uh, I thought she had a temperament problem or some other code. Because if you put it out there, then it can be knocked down. I had a guy walk up to me once at, at, a, at a speech and say afterwards, you know, I, you're pretty well spoken, and, and so is that Barack Obama. Maybe that's the problem. If y'all were better spoken... So I thought about that for a moment, and I said to him, so, sir, are you telling me, it was a white gentleman, I said, are you telling me that all white people are well-spoken? <laughs> now, he hadn't turned it on his head that way. In the same way that the critics of Sonia Sotomayor failed to turn on their head this argument about, like, what was wrong with empathy when empathy was cited as the reason f for nominating Clarence Thomas? Hmm. What was wrong with, with being proud of your heritage when Samuel Alito said he was proud of his heritage and, and, and railed against the notion of discrimination against his Italian-American, his Italian immigrant parents? When you turn the argument on its head, 
then it kind of silences people. And you've seen some retracting and backpedaling going on. But you have to put it out there first. So uh, to me, it was healthy. Well, I mean, there are people whose job it is, you know, to put it out, <laughs> to put it out there. They have to do their job. What I think is interesting about this moment is, and I think it may be partly because of uh, the election of Obama and because of his enormous popularity, that there does seem to be time enough for something that is almost like a conversation. Do you know what I mean? It's not just kind of, you know, the slur and then the counter slur and then the, you know, and then the march, you know, Um, which, you know, frankly, has been somewhat of a pattern, right? I do feel like there is this moment in which I think largely because of um, President Obama's election, but also because of his popularity and also because of even his example of a certain kind of calm um, and the irrefutableness of his tremendous talent, I think, has created a space in which we can have a conversation. And what you've seen happen over the last 10 days around Judge Sotomayor has been that. It's every day more information. Every day something gets added to the point that we now have the backpedaling. And that conversation will continue through the confirmation hearings, but that's good. I've talked to people in the White House who are thrilled about this because they are happy in their enemies. They are happy that the people leading the charge were Newt Gingrich, who I think was at point zero zero in the polls. I mean, they're happy that these are the people who, who were the most... Um, you know, least popular. But what, what, what is interesting to me is that it's not just a Barack Obama phenomenon. The, the, the point I make in my book is that throughout the last several decades, it has not just been this one. Otherwise, it would be, we could say, oh, it's a one-off, it's a fluke, that's it, we're done. No, it's been building over time, over time, over time. I think I first stumbled upon it in Baltimore. When I lived and worked in Baltimore for the Evening Sun, I was here at the time when Baltimore elected first selected and then elected its first black mayor, Du Burns, who rose to be, governor, to be mayor when uh, Don Schaefer went to, gov- to Annapolis, and Kurt Schmoke. Now, those of you who were here during the Kurt Schmoke election, remember, it felt a lot like Obama. It felt a lot like, wow, this is a big moment, and we're so excited, and then it kind of faded. Uh, because reality often kicks in, as we find out with all breakthrough candidates. But it's something that's happening everywhere. It's happening in, it happened in Baltimore. It happened in Massachusetts, where Deval Patrick, who had never run for dog catcher, got elected the first black governor on his first try. That never happens. It's happening in Alabama, where a black congressman from Birmingham is running for governor. Governor in a state where the Confederate flag is still flying. I mean, he's running, and we don't know what's going to happen. I'm just saying... <laughs> that there is something that's going on and it's not just at this level of Barack Obama if it were we could so easily be disappointed because one of the truths about Barack Obama is that he is not going to be the race man that a lot of people want him to be because he's got a job to do and he knows or he believes that some of that would get in his way well I think he, he, he the good thing is that he, I think he's never held himself out to be that and so when people tell me they're really really disappointed I say well he, you know that's not really what he's said that he is the, the thing that I think, and, and you've just hit on this with, with talking about, you know, Kurt Schmoke and the feeling that's happened before that, hey, this is the guy, you know, this is the breakthrough. And, and what I love about your book and, and documenting all these cases, which are actually kind of geographically dispersed also, uh, where these breakthroughs have happened, is that, you know, those instances are instances of black electoral success. And there is a difference between black electoral success and black representation, in, in, the sense, in the sense in which 
in the sense in which it was understood or what the expectation of it was, I think, um, it, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, that is that black representation would change, would result in the change in the material condition of um, blacks and other marginalized people. That, that, that there was the perception of that connection. And, and Lonnie Guineer wrote about this you know, years ago. They are two different things, though, right? And one is um, symbolic and can have some substance to it, no question about it, and we get very excited about it. The other one is a lot trickier. The, the other one is the stuff that Diana Morris was talking about when, we were, when she was describing what we do at the Open Society Institute. The other part was dealing with education and housing and you know, all of the disparities that we know about here in Baltimore. And that's the payoff that when it doesn't come through, people kind of confuse it with the black electoral success piece. And I wonder if um, maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about, particularly as a reporter, how you kind of delineate those two things. Well, if you listen, as you point out, the way Barack Obama defines himself and the way people have put their own needs and wants and desires on him is not always the same. And it's true for a lot of these breakthrough candidates. It's not trickle-down so much as it's kind of an outside-in kind of politics. They don't run saying, I'm going to fix black education or I'm going to fix black health care. They say, I'm going to fix education, I'm going to fix that health care, and the people who suffer disproportionately from lack of access to both are going to be the ones who benefit disproportionately if I can pull this off. That's their way when you ask them, and I asked dozens of them, and they all answered without talking to each other about it, basically the same way, that the new civil rights movement isn't about just speaking to and for African Americans, but it's making... Is building a coalition where everybody feels they have some skin in the game. Because if you say to people in Alabama, I, I want you to elect me governor because I only care about my people, it ain't going to happen. But if you say, you know what, when I drive down the back roads, I, I actually talked to a young man in South Carolina who's a member of the state house. His father was arrested in the Orangeburg. He was an organizer of the Orangeburg Massacre. He ran South Carolina for Jesse Jackson two successive elections. Cleveland Sellers, his son, Bakari, is 23 years old, is now a member of the House, thinking one day of running for governor. But he says, even though he grew up in a household where civil rights activism was out front, that when he drives down a back road in South Carolina and he sees a house without plumbing, he just sees a house without plumbing. It doesn't matter whether somebody is white or black living in it. This is the son of the civil rights generation. So it's a different approach in their minds to how you speak to the issues which are of concern, primarily to disadvantage people black and white. Now you can argue about whether that's effective or whether you're leaving people by the side of the road who aren't being spoken for, but that's their answer to the question. Well, it's, it's really interesting that you, you've, you've raised the generational divide issue, which is a, a, a key part of the, the book too. And I actually think there may be, you know, I've been thinking about three or four divides. One is the generational divide. I think there may even be a geographic divide in how we talk about race also. You know, when I first came to Baltimore uh, 15 years ago, you know, I said to some of my colleagues at the law school, I said, well, I've met, you know, a lot of black people and I've met a lot of white people. Where are the other people? And people said, what other people? <laughs> and, and I'm from New York, so I came from New York. So I meant, you know, the Latinos, the Asians. And, and, um, and obviously Baltimore's gotten more diverse over the last 15 years. But when I first came, it was very much a black and white town. Well, to talk about race, you know, as just black and white in California, right, or in Texas or in New York... It's not a real conversation about race. I mean, you're basically having a binary conversation that is not rich. So there's the geographic piece. I think there's also the national-local divide. A lot of the, 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 
I actually think at the national level, we have a lot of conversations about race. We're having one right now about Judge Sotomayor. We had a, you know, one about Barack Obama. We had one about Katrina. I mean, we, we have a lot of kind of these, I, I'm not saying that they're fulfilling conversations, but they are conversations of a sort. And to my experience, not only here in Baltimore, but as a civil rights lawyer working in Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas, it was actually always different at the very local level. That is, the things that people were talking about, about, not that they didn't know that this other stuff was happening, Jesse was running and they were working on the campaign or whatever, but the, the interactions that they were having on the ground were different. And, and so therefore the, the immediacy of the conversation for them focused on different things. And one of the things I'm troubled by or thinking about is how we can find a way to uh, push up the local conversation so that the, the national conversation we're having is not all about what you know, many of us here in the room focus on, which is what you know, happens in Washington and who are the kind of top leaders, but how it's really experienced on the ground. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are about that because you've had the experience of being a local reporter um, and obviously you're a black woman, you have a church, you know what some of those you know, smaller conversations are like, and yet you're also a kind of, you know, inside the beltway, and so you know what those conversations what? are like. <laughs> That's a slur in some circles. <laughs> this is Baltimore. You know? I know. Actually, I think I, 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 you, you make an important point, and I, and I want to, it's much more consequential and risky to have this conversation on a local level, because it is clear what the gain and the losses locally. I mean, you literally can put your hand on what you're not going to get if you give this to somebody else. Um, you're, you're clear that if, if you have a black mayor and that black mayor controls the jobs and the patronage, that black people are more likely to benefit in a very concrete way. And if you have a white mayor, it may go a different way. There is, there's risk involved in conversation that's race-based. But, he, but here's the other thing, and it's something which is, um, since we're in the cross-plugging business here, which comes across in Sherilyn's book. Sher available on Amazon. <laughs> available on Amazon. <laughs> we're driving up those numbers tonight. Here's the, thing about, here's the thing that she talks about. She tells a very searing story about lynching on the eastern shore of Maryland. An untold story. Something you, didn't, you thought you knew about, you didn't know anything about it. It's one of those books that you pick up and you put down and go, well, holy mm, crap, who knew? So, but one of the interesting things, themes that arose in her book was how intraracially we didn't talk about these things. There were lynchings that white people did that they didn't tell their children about or that they pretended not to see. There were lynchings that black people saw that they were ashamed to have someone in the family who had been victim and you didn't talk about it. So even when there was really dramatic racial outcomes and conflicts, we sometimes didn't talk to each other about it, let alone across race lines. So imagine the layers and of hurdle which are, are in the way every time you want to talk about race, not to mention the fact that people just get their backs up when you talk about it, when you bring it up, when you say, no, I'm not colorblind. colorblind. What's colorblind? What, does that mean you're blind? What is wrong with that? I've come to believe that when tell, someone tells me they're colorblind, it means that they have somehow rejected a part of me which they consider to be a negative. Because if they considered my race to be a positive, it would not be a problem. I love it. You walk in a party and someone says, there's one only one other black person there. And they say, oh, you know Joe. You say, no, I don't know Joe. Who's Joe? And they go, oh, he's the guy um, in the blue shirt. <laughs> and you look around and say, well, there's 25 people in blue shirts. And, they find, and he's tall and his hair's curly. And, fi and, and finally, you say, oh, you mean the black guy? 
And they have, they have, they have, they're stumped because they thought they were being so liberal and open-minded by pretending not to see an identifying characteristic. So we are not real comfortable with can, it. Can I, can I just say on that? I mean, this is... <laughs> I'm definitely going to be correct. You know, Eric Holder made this speech where he said, you know, we're a nation of cowards. And, and I, in terms of talking about race. And, um, you know, I did a, a program to um, an assembly of Lutherans. So these were all Lutheran pastors and, you know, really muckety-mucks, you know, in the, in the Lutheran church. It was out in Oregon. And then I did, you know, gave a big speech, and then I did these breakout sessions. And several of the, of the you know, pastors said to me that, you know, they were just entreating me, asking me, you know, how do I do this? I want to talk about race. How do I, how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I? And it was, you know, maybe I was just tired. But I got kind of irritated. And, you know, I said, you know, you guys are running the show. You know, you're very smart. You've, you know, you've been in leadership positions. You've been all over the world. Um, you know, if, I, if, if you got an assignment from the synod right now, you'd know exactly what to do and who to hire and how to make it happen. And for God's sakes, you know, stop being a baby. <laughs> that you've got to take it on yourself to get some courage and do this. I, I, I can't hold your hand through it. And it is shocking that people who are otherwise very accomplished you know, when it comes to race, get very timid. So I heard what, what, you know, Eric Holder said, and I thought, well, you know, Nation of Cowards, and of course I've written this book about truth and reconciliation and all the things that stop us from being able to talk about race, and, I, and so I'm aware that it's hard. And I have to say, when I first heard him say it, I thought, eh, it's kind of off. I don't know about the Nation of Cowards. I think we do actually talk about race a lot. We do it in, in coded ways. But I do think he's right that there is a a piece of this that requires a certain kind of courage, the courage to look around the room and say, oh, you know Joe, who's he? The African-American guy in the corner. I mean, that's not that big, you know? <laughs> I mean, honestly, we, we're okay with it, you know? And I think that the, the fear that the mere mention, the acknowledgement of someone's race puts you, know, you in, a, in a situation in which somehow you, you might be seen as, as, as transgressing. I do think that... This is a moment in which I think we're getting past that because nobody's pretending that they don't see Obama's race. I mean, he hasn't even asked you to do that, right? So, so we're in a moment in which, you know, there's the president. We're all looking at him. You know, we're looking at Michelle. I mean, we're having a conversation about her arms. You think we'd be doing that if she was white? This is because people are looking at her. I'm honestly, I mean, she didn't say that. She doesn't, she disavows it. But honestly, it's the... You know, getting permission to even just kind of look at black people who are not entertainers or prize fighters. You know, just having permission to just look and say, hey, they did the DAP, you know, which was the terrorist fist jab or whatever. You know, these are all, all of these things are arising because we're having the, the gaze of the nation focused on black people in a way that's not negative and in a way in which they're not being entertained. And we just have to get used to it. And you know... And, and one, of the, one of the interesting things about how the Obamas have dealt with this is the subtlety. Um, it is true that Barack Obama does not believe we have transcended race. I know because I asked him. He doesn't believe it for a minute. So if anybody wants to put that on him, they're, they're talking to somebody else. But it's very interesting the way they do it. One day I was watching a tape of the, of the president sitting in the Oval Office, and I noticed over his shoulder was a bust of Martin Luther King, where they used to be one of Winston Churchill. Now, only the Brits noticed that it was gone. 
And I thought, that's interesting. Okay. And then I thought, Michelle has school children into the White House, and she does what she always, what every first lady does. They sit in a semicircle, she reads to them, and then she says, let me tell you about my house. Did you know it was built by slaves? I couldn't imagine Laura Bush saying that. Or Hillary Clinton. I couldn't imagine it having happened before. And when, and when Michelle Obama embraces District, the District of Columbia and, and chooses of her two, her two commencement speeches this year, one was at a California state school, a college that was primarily Latino, and the other one was at, a, at, a, at an achievement school, a public school in the District of Columbia where 99% of the kids graduating high school going to college. And she talked about achievement, and she talked about how she felt the inadequacies at one point in her life that some of them might be feeling. There is no mistaking the message they're sending, but they're not going to put the fist in the air and say, we got that, the White House is black now, you know, the way Ludacris did. They're going to find... <laughs> he, did. Over here. he did. It was not, it was not helpful. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, that sends signals. That's, that's a way of talking about race, which is not a, just putting it out there. It's part of it. Today in the president's speech in Cairo, uh, as part of his argument about why the Palestinians should eschew violence. He talked about the great movements in America, in the world, which have accomplished so much without violence. And he cited the civil rights movement as, a, as an example. So, I mean, that's just something he just slides in there and moves on. Then he goes, plays basketball. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you know, so let me, let, me, let me put out there a disappointing moment for me. Because you're right, there is, that is the way they do it. So if you saw one of the, maybe it was the last or the penultimate presidential press conference, um, you know, one of the things that President Obama has done is, you know, he, he calls on reporters from Ebony Magazine, right? And why not? Who knew? And who knew that they were reporters? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and the reporter stood up and asked, and it was an African-American man, and he said, President Obama, you, you know, this, the press conference was all about the economy. And he asked him what I thought was a really important and legitimate question. He said um, that the effects of the economy are disproportionately falling on African-Americans, particularly African-American men. And he cited the statistic of the 50% unemployment rate for black men in New York City. And he said, can you tell me, President Obama, um, you know, what in your package, and it wasn't in a confrontational way, it was in a very, can you just describe what is it in, in the initiatives that you've proposed to address the economy that you think will specifically address the way in which um, African-American men and in, in the way that he had just described are being affected by the economy. And President Obama looked like a little flustered. Now, to me, if you call on the ebony man, you're going to get the race question. I didn't understand why he was flustered. <laughs> but he, didn't he, okay, so anyway, you don't have to say it. But he seemed a little thrown. He seemed a little thrown. And then he said something that I have to confess, and I, I really am a big supporter, frankly, of the president. So, and she's not saying that, I'm saying that. Um, so I was really quite disappointed. He said something to the effect of, I believe that our, my policies will help everybody, and by helping everybody, you know, it was kind of like something like all boats rise with the common tide. What is that expression? Something lifts all boats. Rising that one. tide. Right, right, right. Rising tide. So he basically, which if a Republican had said, we would have called trickle down economics. Um, but more importantly, I, I understood why he couldn't say, like, you know, here's, you know, I have a line item for black men. I mean, I knew he was not going to say that, you know. <laughs> so I'm not mad about that. I'm not mad about that. 
what, but what I did think that was warranted and appropriate was a kind of a moment of compassion. Um, well, basically what the guy was saying was, did you notice? Did you notice? That was basically, actually, and he could I, have said something I, I, like I actually shockingly agree with you on that. To this point, he was also asked a question in another press conference by um, Ebony Magazine about homelessness, which he also punted. Um, he, he decided, but, but you see, I looked at that and said, wow, someone asked a question about homelessness at a presidential news conference. That would have never happened before. Now, I know as a reporter, I don't always get answers to my questions. I have moderated debates, so I know. <laughs> I know. But, but sometimes it's important to have the question out there. Um, in that same press conference or another one, Ann Compton from ABC News stood up and asked what sounded like an inartful question, which yielded an interesting answer. It was kind of, so Mr. President, you've been president now, so how's, what about a race thing? I mean, it was better than that, but not much. And his answer, however, was, well, that was a historic day. We had a good time. Everybody was very excited. And now we have to get to work. Now, understand that that is truly what he believes, um, and, and, and he could have waxed poetic because he's capable of that. But he also, he was, he's very conscious of the fact that that's not what he wants the next day's headline to be. He wants it to be about the work he's doing. The more it becomes about, and this is a, a, rule, of, a rule of political life for the politicians in here, the more it becomes how different I am, what the distance is between you and me, the less likely I'm going to get elected. You have to be, that's the politicians applauding. You have to... <laughs> You have to do what you can to make the people you represent, no matter what the difference is, whether it's class, race, gender, feel that you represent their interests. And if, you're, if you feel, if you, for any reason, I, I heard uh, the Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, talk about Sonia Sotomayor, and he said he wanted to know whether her statement about a Latina woman being wiser meant that she would come down on the side of Latinas. What? What? I mean, how did, where did he get that from? He got that from, he is, he is reaching into a real core concern, which a lot of people feel, which is, is that person not going to speak for me? And so on some level in the political brain of, of Barack Obama, and I haven't been there, so I'm just saying, <laughs> he says, those black folk are to give me some room to run. And they're going to understand that I'm trying to say this thing. But, but where is the end of that, that rope? When does it begin to fray and snap? I saw the first headline today that gays and lesbians are upset with him because he, they don't feel like he's been speaking enough. Those headlines are going to start to come out more and more and more as liberals who for, no, didn't fail to notice that he wasn't really all that liberal um, <laughs> begin to get disappointed. You know, um, in, the, in the book, um, Cheat Cheat, in the I have things I want to ask you, I want to make sure. Oh, wait a minute. She's going to get her stuff in the, in the book. Um, in, in the book, when you're talking about um, some of the most eloquent passages are this, the discussions that you had with Andrew Young, um, with, with Reverend Joseph Lowry, all of the kind of, you know, older stalwart civil rights guys, you know, very few of whom immediately got on the Obama train uh, many of whom, like Andrew Young, were just like, it's not going to happen, and who were quite resistant to it. And in the end, after Obama's elected, of course, everybody's on board. And um, I, think, I think it was Andrew Young who said something. He was talking about the Moses and the Joshua generation. And for those of you who don't know, this was something that Barack Obama talked about uh, in Selma, 
when he talked about the Moses generation of having kind of brought, you know, the, these are the older civil rights, you know, stalwarts of the 60s who, you know, brought you to the, almost to the Jordan, but you then wandered around for 40 years, and that the Joshua generation now has to bring you across the Jordan. And I see my friend Sue Levitt in there. We've talked about this issue about what it means to be part of the Joshua generation. And, um, and you know, we could get very biblical. These are two, you know, AME people, so it could get really ugly, so we're not going to do that. Preacher's kid. Yeah, yeah, she's a preacher's kid. And, you know, it's a, but, you know, it's a kind of an interesting metaphor, this issue about who this Joshua generation is. And at one point in the book, you quote Andy Young is saying, basically, he didn't say, don't forget who brung you to the dance, but he says as happens in the Bible when God says to Joshua, you know, get these 12 stones so that the people will remember, you know, who parted the Red Sea and who brought you over. And so that when you're in the promised land, you'll never forget who brought you out of Egypt. Basically, Andrew Young kind of says that, like, don't forget at least. What would this look like to satisfy, let's say, an Andrew Young? What would it look like? How would Barack Obama show or, or any of the young generation in the book that you talk about demonstrate that they have not forgotten, that they understand what that struggle was all about? Actually, I don't think they can. I, I think what happens is one generation outlives the last generation. Power doesn't cede itself lightly. And a lot of the resistance among older African Americans to Barack Obama was they just didn't know who he was. I mean, Ron Dellums, a stalwart, lion of the movement, now the mayor of Oakland, he was with Hillary Clinton to the bitter end. And he really just didn't, see who this Barack Obama guy was or why. Now, as opposed to Joe Lowry, who was out there on his limb, you know, he basically took my head off when I suggested we were in a post-racial time. That was early in my reporting process. I let that go. I said, okay, we're not. Back, back up. But Andrew Young, you know, Andrew Young is an interesting story. He told, he was, he was in Atlanta and he told people, you know, I think Barack Obama could be president. This is like September of 2007. And then he said, in 2016, and the audience, which had been starting to clap, kind of went, whoa, 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 what? And he said, you know, they're going to kill him. He said it out loud. He said, they, they, the problem with our black leaders is they get where they're going too young. Now, this is an interesting comment coming from Andy Young, who was very, very young in the days that he marched with King. But he started, cited Medgar Evers and King. And when I asked him about that after the election, he said, you know, I just was speaking from where my experience had been in this country and what my disappointments had been in this country. And he graciously admitted that he was off. He was wrong. But what happens with this generation, they either say, okay, this is great, and not many of them do this. Vernon Jordan told me once that he was the only leader of a national civil rights organization, the Urban League, who wasn't carried out in a pine box. Because people just hold on and hold on. They don't even realize they're holding on. Because the only thing that happens when power changes hands, and it happened for Andy Young, it happened for John Lewis, and now it's happening with another generation is you have to snatch it from them. Um, the baton just doesn't get handed over easily, and that's not, that's not unique to our community. It just doesn't. Power is power, no matter what. And so it's a real complicated, and um, there's been a lot of intra-community friction about it, which a lot of got quieted down. But you know who's been to the White House more than anybody else lately? Al Sharpton. <laughs> Let me tell you. Al Sharpton, during the campaign, said... You know, y'all don't think, you think I'm going to be out of this when this is over, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going anywhere. Because he learned during the campaign that it would not be useful to Barack Obama for him to be going around campaigning on his behalf. So he just called him on his cell phone. And he's been in there having meetings about education, all kinds of things. But you don't hear them publicized that much. But still, Al until Sharpton, tonight, folks. until tonight, 
Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson still believe they have access and they still have sway and still have pull. And the truth is, all of us who thought, oh, well, once this Barack Obama's elected, or not all of us, but a lot of people who thought, now we can move on, we don't have to worry about these guys anymore, were sadly mistaken. So I want to pull it back to something kind of personal. Because you mentioned Andy Young and, you know, his conviction that, based on his own experience, you know, that what, that what was going to happen to Obama was going to be something terrible. And I think that we're very much shaped in terms of how we approach race by the stories that we've heard about race or by the experiences that we had when we were very young. And I can think of now, as I'm older, things that even didn't seem like they were stories at the time, but I realized they are and that they did affect me. And I wondered if you could reach back, I'm going to talk real slow so you have a chance, and think <laughs> and tell one story of, some, of something either that you heard or that you saw very early on and how you think it affected how you approach even talking about race. This is something which we talked about the other day for the first time I had never thought about it this way before. My, my father raised his children to be race people, but in a different kind of way. I told you the story about how I was pretend, a little pretend shocked that the note wasn't for me. But the truth is my father told us that if someone, at the time I was growing up, we were just beginning to be called black. We were still Negro, and that was a point of honor. But to be called black in a certain way was, was a slur. So he was told us if we were called a black so-and-so, we were to respond by saying politely, thank you. Which I found really disarmed people. Because if, you caught the, if they came at you with what they thought was a slur and you didn't react the way they intended, it made them stop and go, well, wait, wait, what did I just do? And then you had the power and you could move on from there. Sherilyn said to me, her father wouldn't have done that at all. <laughs> Two men raised at the same Sister time. And, and, and her sister is going, no, no, in the front row, because he was a more fiery, you can tell who got the fire. He was the, he was the more fiery of the two, and the younger of the two, and therefore the less patient of the two. Now, I'm not saying my father was patient. My brother's going, no, no. Well, her father also was about six foot two, and ext- with a penetrating, I almost like Ver- Vernon Jordan. So if he said thank you, I would be scared after That's true. you. So. <laughs> That's true. But it was a difference. It was a psyche. It was how you were raised to think about yourself. You weren't raised to think that, I mean, we heard all the stories about all the ways that you were limited, the places you couldn't go, the way people treated you, even intra-racially, because our parents were from the West Indies. We were aware of all that, that. But for some reason, it was never communicated to me as something that I should therefore go on a corner and lick my wounds over. I, I, I never once thought it wasn't something that I could overcome by sheer force of will. How about you? You know, we have an almost ubiquitous story that my father used to tell, and, and we roll our eyes when we hear it, because she'll probably roll her eyes, because we, we hear it so much. But, you know, as an adult, I've had a chance to think about it a lot more and realize how much it's affected me. My father was a social worker in, in Harlem when I was growing up, but before that, he had been in a, Harlem. <laughs> but before that, he had been uh, an electrical contractor. He decided to be an electrician when he was in, in Panama before he came here. And he tells a story about going on a job interview. He was trying to get a contracting job uh, on Long Long Island in New York. And he was interviewed by a white man for the job. And uh, he was called back. And the the, uh, owner of the the facility who was giving out the job said to him, Mr. Eiffel, you you seem very qualified. I'm very, very impressed by you. I'd really like to hire you for the job. But I have to tell you, 
a lot of these guys who are working out here, these white guys, you know, they're going to have a problem. What are you going to do if these white men who are supposed to be working for you on this job say, I, I won't take orders from a black man, won't do what you say? And my father says, he said, I'd fire them. And the man said, Mr. Eiffel, you're hired. Now, now, what, you know, all of the pieces that you get from the story, we heard it so many times you kind of don't pay attention to it. But you heard certain things. One, there is such a thing as racism, right? So that, that's real. Two, you stand your ground, right? He said exactly what he would do. And three, that there are white people who get it, right? The, the guy who was, you know, who was, who was hiring him and said, you know, you're the man. That, that it's not, you know, it's not going to be 100% of the people. Yeah, it may be the guys, but you stand your ground and count on that one guy. You know, so that's three lessons that come from one story that we heard over and over again to the point that we paid no attention to it. And I, and I actually think that many of us are, um, should be more conscious of the race stories that we were exposed to as young people, but also that we tell our children and that we expose them to. Because I think, they're, I think we, we're very much shaped, and this is part of my concern about, you know, kind of big conversations. A lot of what we do, what we think, and how we approach race comes from how we approached it in our families, whether we have permission to talk about You were just talking about how much we talked about it. We talked about it so much that we're shocked when people seem scared to talk about it because we're just talking. We don't know people that are going, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> because for us it was such a natural thing to do. And I think we have to kind of become more conscious of the ways in which um, we're really influenced by the small piece. We think it's that we're reading the paper and we voted for Barack Obama, but that's not it. Y your ability to say that's Joe, the African-American over there, really comes from kind of what you learned about how you can talk about race. And of course, we change over time. But I, I think that's such an important piece of it that we don't examine enough to kind of help us get over some of that stuff in many instances. You know, that's a beautiful note on which to start taking some questions from our fabulous audience here, but I don't know where the microphones are. Does somebody know where the microphones are? Oh, okay, we didn't give her enough of a heads up. <laughs> or should we just take, how should we do, do you, okay. Just, okay, well, I, I guess I have to say something else profound. Here's something we didn't touch. <laughs> Here's something we didn't touch on, which I do want to touch on briefly because the, the question is bound to come up, which is, where are the women? in our next generation of leaders. Uh, when I set out to write the book, I thought to myself, I know I'm going to write a book about all the breakthrough leaders. And then I, halfway in, I thought, well, I found all these guys. Where are the women? This is wrong. I'm a woman. I'm going to find them. And so I went out looking, and I found, I found some at different levels of government, but none of them at the breakthrough level of statewide office that I was looking for. Not really. I, I found the, the state, the, the um, Speaker of the Assembly in California, Karen Bass, who's 55 years old when she became that. And I thought, hmm, she's not one of these 40-year-olds breaking through. What's going on? Well, what's going on with women is we're raising our kids. We're making priorities. We're doing all the things we've all, always done. But I also discovered what's happening. And I found this talking to women who train women to run for office, that there is an ambition gap when it comes to politics for a lot of women, partly because we all want, we all want to lead, but we're going to find different ways to lead. We're going to run nonprofits. We're going to run our PTA. We're going to rescue our children, but we're not necessarily going to dial the phone 10 times a day and say, could you give me a thousand dollars? And that is what it takes to be a politician, which is why it's so interesting to watch these breakthrough guys who are bold enough to say, well, I, I, I've never done this before, but I think I'll be president. 
When Shirley Chisholm did it, they laughed her out of the room, quite honestly. And, yeah. and that's what's so, so ironic for me because so much of my sense of what you could be was actually as a result of people like Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, who was a complete idol for me. Barbara Jordan, I mean... <laughs> the Watergate hearings took place when I was, I'm going to say, eight, maybe nine. And my, my sister here will remember, she's a year older than me, my sister Darlene. Our older sister, not that much older, but Gwen, Gwen's contemporary, not that much older, not that much older. No, no. I thought we were going to talk about that. <laughs> but Gwen's contemporary was older than us. And she, she was a, a teenager, she was in high school. And, you know, the Watergate hearings were on TV. Remember, you didn't have 500 channels. You had, you had channel 2, f- two four, seven, nine, which was W-O-R. You had 11 and 13 PBS. That was it. And it, it was a lot of channels. That was a lot. And, but they were running the Watergate hearings on every channel. And you, we were distressed because we were young. We didn't want to watch the Watergate hearings every day. Hi, Mr. Brown. I would like to in the chair. Look at me. Mr. Brown. I'd like to put the bomb and point of order. That's a very good I Sam Irvin. That's, whoa, Sam, whoa. that's exactly who that was, Sam Irvin. So, I, you see, I'm so old enough to remember the names. The name, exactly. <laughs> so, well, you could only imagine what it was like when this black woman, Barbara Jordan, started to speak. And, and, I, and I've talked about this before. This was for me, you know, Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm were the first two non-decorative black women I saw have authority. Because, on TV, on TV, on TV, on TV. Because there was Julia, there was Diane Carroll as Julia, you know? There was like the Barbara McNair variety, but y'all don't even know about Barbara McNair. Anyway, variety special. But there were not, you know, kind of substitute, you remember Barbara McNair? Okay. Substitute, (laughs) substantive, serious, powerful. What I remember seeing Barbara Jordan that day is the power of her voice held the room. What was funny was I could tell the white men didn't want to be held, but they were held. They were just caught up. They, you know, when she was speaking, you couldn't move. There was a truth to it. There was a power to it. So these were the women that made me think. And so you're right. When you say, where yeah. are the women today? Who are, who, who are my daughters going to look at? And I would recommend to you, if you haven't done it, to go back and, and read Barbara Jordan's speech to, on the floor of the Democratic National Convention in 1976. And then reread Barack Obama's 1984, 2004 speech. It's almost like he channeled Barbara Jordan when he talked about the United States of America. She spoke about unity too. She was the keynote speaker then. In fact, one of the interesting things that came across in the book was they, 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 one of the reasons why Barack Obama was anointed to give that what turned out to be this seminal 2004 keynote speech is because a group of three black women in the part in the Democratic Party who decided they, that we got to have some people of color on this podium created what they called the Barbara Jordan Project. And they went out and they hunted for someone to give that speech and the rest is history. All right, we have a microphone here and um, people all over the room and one over here. So there's somebody with a hand up. Is it on? I attend um, University of Maryland Law School, which I find to be a very... Hi. Bring her! <laughs> I find to be, um, maybe not terribly, but somewhat a diverse um, institution, and I appreciate the different views that I have from my um, colleagues and classmates. And I'm curious what you think about um, 
African-American institutions in this day and age, like Howard and other colleges that play an important role in reaching out to the community and bringing people into educational environments that they may not otherwise have access to, but also isolates them from an exchange of ideas and um, that I think is very important to be exposed to. And I'm curious what you think their role is now. I had have, I have the honor this year of giving the commencement speech at Howard University. And I have to tell you, someone asked me that later that night, I was at some Shishi Washington dinner, and a white gentleman turned to me and said, so we don't really need black colleges anymore, right? And I <clears throat> choked on my steak and, and said, that I, I think it's possible to still get the values. I didn't go to an African-American institution, HBCU, but I, I, I have to say HBCU, but I have to say that there is a huge and very specific value to them, and not just because no longer other people won't accept you, but because it does open you, especially to a lot of folks who didn't necessarily grow up in a stereotypical African-American environment. It does open your mind, but there's no reason why it has to be isolating. The whole point of education and for educators is to make sure that education is not isolating. Certainly, HBCUs are no more isolating than the white colleges, the college I went to. And, and that's when it becomes a challenge for, not only for the, for the taught, but the teacher to make sure that you reach beyond that. But, you know, it, it's also true that, uh, there you are, um, that it takes, that you're right, you know, I, I think the University of Maryland Law School has done a really good job, both in terms of students and faculty, in terms of diversity, but that takes work. You know, it's not like, ooh, just, I wonder what's going to happen, you know. And I think that when we think about HBCUs and, and, and even the premise of, uh, of a little piece of the question is, you know, because we, we, we think about it being isolating, it's because white students aren't applying. They, no, they, they can go to HBCUs too. You know, it's very interesting. It's like the institution, I mean, I don't think people think about that, but it's true. I mean, we want to, there's no question that we want to ensure that all of our, you know, flagship institutions are diverse and so forth. But, you know, there are white students who go to Howard. You know, there are white students who go to Coppin. There are, you know, there are white students who go to Meharry. They, they go to these schools and bravo to them, you know, for, for, for putting themselves in that environment where they can get a quality education as well. So I think in a way we have to kind of open up our minds to the possibilities of what HBCUs really can continue to provide. And one of the first things we have to do is just make sure that they are resourced in ways that enables them to really fulfill the mission that I think they can fulfill. Good evening. I am really enjoying your conversation. I am very interested in knowing what you think, what you come away with when you think about the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill uh, hearings that went on so long ago. And and also, uh, how do you feel about what his role is on the Supreme Court? The views to be expressed are my own. Um, you know, I don't even actually want to go into the, into the full set of the hearings and all that stuff. For, for, you know, for the reasons that they are what they are. And with the, in the fullness of time, we're, we're able to even see more clearly what they were. Um, I will say this. And I said this recently, and I wrote a piece, you know, about um, Judge Sotomayor's nomination. And I started the piece by describing how 
um, I called one of my Latino colleagues to just commiserate about how excited I knew, you know, he would be about the nomination of the first Latina justice. And he said, are you disappointed? You know, like, did you want to be a black person? Because I had been saying that, you know, the, the short list should include all these people. And many people had said, I mean, I did, you know, Tavis's show. And he said, Sherlyn, no matter what, you know, that politically Barack Obama is not going to nominate a black person. You know, and just a little hate. But did we going to nominate a black person to, to sit on the Supreme Court? Tavis, Tavis, Tavis. Well, Tavis. well and that's another question. So... <laughs> So, but, but, but what I said to him was, you know, frankly, I think for the way Barack Obama has presented himself, there's no reason to assume that anybody's off the short list. And in fact, I think it's actually a mistake to, to think that. And that, frankly, I've been of the belief that we ought to have another black justice on the court. When I talk about the importance of diversity and I talk about the importance of the exchange of different viewpoints and backgrounds, it is very clear that Clarence Thomas's background the way he grew up in Pinpoint, his relationship with his grandfather, his relationship, uh, relationships at various schools, his attitude towards his own education and how he was treated has shaped his view about race. Uh, and that's all I'm saying of every justice, right, that, that it shapes their view. And what I'm saying is there ought to be enough room at the table for another justice who's black, whose worldview has been shaped in a way that's closer to, say, 90% of African Americans in the country. <laughs> I don't deny him the seat. I'm just saying. <laughs> let me tell you. I, 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 let me tell you. Let me tell you a Clarence Thomas story. About a year ago, I was at an event in um, Washington, which honored young high school students who had achieved. And this was their big night. They were getting. They were all dressed up, and they were getting. They were public school high school students who had done very well academically and, and had gotten scholarships from this program. The star of the night was to be Bill Cosby, who was to come speak. And so in advance, at the reception in advance, I come across Clarence Thomas, who I'm a little surprised, I guess, to see there. But he's working the room, and he's not talking to the, the poobahs. He's talking to the kids. I put this away, and I think that's interesting. On stage comes Bill Cosby, wearing um, dark glasses, sweatpants, Birkenstocks, and proceeds to talk about how young boys shouldn't wear the pants down and this is all terrible and young kids still can't get, better get some proper names. Now this is in a room full of achieve, achieving black students who were doing the right thing. And this is what he, the message he brought them. Meanwhile, in the audience, who got there early and stayed late, shaking every hand, walking up to every young black man in that and woman in that room and saying, I'm a judge, what do you want to do when you grow up, was Clarence Thomas. So race affects us, we speak on it differently, we live it differently, and a lot of people who would pray, if anyone had told me I would come away from that evening more impressed by Clarence Thomas and Bill Cosby, I would have called them a liar. But that's why I keep my mind open. We have this, we've been encouraging our patrons of the Pratt to tweet us and Facebook us some questions for the both of you. This is oh, from, go our, ahead, Baltimore. Go ahead. <laughs> this is from um, Marilyn. Her question is, how must we respond or react to white backlash, the nitpicking need to find fault, discredit, and disrespect related to our new president, much, much of which I believe is racism-based? Is it best to ignore, directly address, and not overreact? Depen depends on the source. If it's someone you respect, you can have a conversation with, have the conversation. If it's someone who you don't respect, you think they're doing it for various reasons, including increasing their speaking fees, um, you can safely ignore them. They'll remain nameless. <laughs> who will remain nameless. I, I just, I think, you, I think there's no proper 
and one way to respond to a conversation like that. But if you feel that someone is doing that, who you respect and who you want to engage in that conversation, have the conversation. Yeah. I'm sorry. Now we have a live. Good evening. Hi. My name is Carla Wynn, and every, um, every other week in my house, I have a discussion on the contributions of people of African ancestry in my faith tradition. And it's very interesting. One evening we um, featured, we screened the film Sankofa, and it was a mixed audience. And um, the white people in the room were, you know, expressed their feelings and were shocked and appalled at some of what they witnessed in the film and also felt very bad. I'm not, sure, not going to say guilty, but bad about what they had witnessed. Do you, well... I'm going to do it anyway. So I'm going to continue to have these discussions in our homes. Would you encourage us individually and collectively to have these conversations in our homes so that we can get to know each other better versus just doing large forums, which are great and wonderful, but I think that it needs to start on the grassroots. I I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, this is what I think is really one of the challenges. I mean, it's one of the challenges I put out to churches. I speak at a lot of churches, you know, a lot of white churches and black churches. Um, I think it's a challenge for our families. I think it's a challenge for our communities that it's almost, it's almost um, unfair, you know, to, to, to watch this, because we all have a lot to say about kind of the national conversation, but we have very little to say kind of to each other in the moment. And I think what you're doing is absolutely right. I think, you know, addressing history and especially having people from different racial groups um, meet and talk about that history is important and the Sankofa film is very powerful. People have very powerful reactions to it. You know, but I also do think, and I, I said this the other day on the radio, one of the problems I think with the conversations on race that we conceive of is that when we think about it, we always think it's an interracial conversation. And I have many, many and support many and um, um, encourage conversations on race and have them all over the country. And I can tell you some of y'all are not ready to talk across race. Some of our conversations, we have some, and I, and I say this to blacks and whites, we have some stuff we have to, when I was writing the, the lynching book, you know, there's some stuff in the black community that has to be dealt with, issues of fear and shame. There's stuff in the white community that has to be dealt with. You know darn well there's stuff in your family, you just suck it up and take another drink every Thanksgiving and just try to get through it, you know. But you know there's stuff that has to be dealt with. Uh, and, and yet, what you want to do is you want to run and you want to have a conversation at some forum in which you're suggesting that you're prepared to talk, have the most difficult conversations. And I think sometimes because we haven't prepared ourselves by the conversations within our own racial groups, the smaller conversations, we then run into the big conversations and then it gets ugly. You've, I mean, I don't know how many of you have been witness to an ugly interracial conversation where people came to be nice but it just goes crazy. You know, I mean... And it happens, I think, because there's not enough prep work has been done. This is a process, and it's a lifelong process. You're not going to have the conversation on race, and then you walk away and like, well, we talked about race, and I'm done. No, this is, you know, we grew up talking about race, and we're still talking about race. You know, it doesn't stop. Doesn't mean you won't get tired of talking about race. You won't get tired. (laughs) But it doesn't mean you still have to do it. You get racial exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This forum... My question concerns many of the news commentators refusing or neglecting to give President Barack Obama his title. Most often I hear them... Most often I just hear them saying Barack or Obama, 
And it seems those uh, who are maybe not national commentators do it so more, much more frequently than some of the nationally there, known ones. There's a lot of what I consider to be a little hypersensitivity about that point. I, I get it all the time. There, there are a couple of answers to it. One of them is uh, that here's, here's the re actual rule. On first reference, you refer to the President of the United States as President Obama. On second reference, he becomes Mr. Obama. People tell me all the time, why are you calling him Mr. Obama? You're not showing the proper respect. Well, I did do, but they don't know the rules of style in a newspaper and on broadcast, but that is the rule. But there's another thing, which is what you're getting at. And it's, the, it's the, the other side of the blade of celebrity. Barack Obama isn't just President of the United States. He is a celebrity in our celebrity-fueled world. We are, never called Laura Bush Laura, but we call Michelle Michelle every day. Why? Because we have celebrified the celebrity. I'm making that word up. Is that good? I like that word. We have celebrified them. <laughs> I'm a black preacher's preacher's daughter. I can make words up. I, I, I once said somebody had been funeralized on the air, and I got so much mail on tomorrow. And I said, but in, in the church, you could Anyway, um, the point is, we have made him such a celebrity that we have now fallen out of the habit of some of the honorifics. I, I, I do think that straight-ahead newscasting should still play, play by the rules. But if you watch, and I know this is not you, but if you watch an entertainment tonight, you should not be surprised if they're calling him Barack, because that's kind of, you know, where our heads have gone in this time. But I don't think, by and large, it's a sign of disrespect. On the other hand, Mike Huckabee referring to Judge Sotomayor, Judge Sonia Sotomayor, as Maria Sotomayor. I'm and just some, saying the same. And some other knucklehead said that by calling her Sotomayor and putting the accent on the last syllable, that was... Un-American. Hi, my name is Jackie McCoy. I'm a teacher in Baltimore City. Um, and this conversation is very... <laughs> When's the last time that happened? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, and I'm a mechanical engineer who went back to the school to teach. Wow. So that's the other part. Um, but um, one of the things that in, in this conversation about um, race in the education setting is I find that... Um, especially in the urban schools, that our kids, our black students, are, are struggling um, more so because of the lack of understanding about how to engage our kids as far as discipline is concerned. You know, and I tell my colleagues that one, this is my perspective, that black people tend to tell their children what they want them to do and white people tend to ask their children what they would like to get done and so when you ask our kids what would you like to do would you like to learn they're like no you know and, and so learning how to work with our kids learning how to work with them and engage them is a very important part of teaching them and and I think understanding the cultural differences would help a lot I, yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think that the, the issue, obviously, of, of culturally, I mean, I think you're right about the need to know the culture of the students that you're teaching. I think that's absolutely true. And I do think that students respond to, you know, different kinds of communication. I mean, one of the issues I've been looking at and talking about a lot lately is the importance of having more black male teachers, especially in middle school. Um, it's no affront to 
black female teachers or white female teachers, but it is a reality of, you, you know, if you know anything about the age, if you know anything about what's, you know, happening with boys at that age, you understand the importance of that figure in the classroom and so forth. So I think all of those things are part of it, and I would certainly hope that you would um, continue to support the Open Society Institute Baltimore that has as one of our, one of our key issues, you know, particularly after school programs and school programs, you know, for children who are on the edge, the kids that, that people don't love, because you know how we all love children in America? Um, well, the kids that people don't love, you know, the older kids who are still in school, the kids who are at risk, the kids who have, you know, serious problems. So I hope you'll continue to support us. Thank you very much. Uh, to both of you, it's been a pleasure to hear you. And Cheryl, I've been in your presence several times. Uh, my question that I wanted to ask you uh, was this, and I'm, gonna, I'm an elected official as well as a person that worked for MTA. And my question is, uh, being an elected official, uh, some of us have believed that political position equate to economic empowerment. And that's, to me, it's one of the biggest misnomers in the world. And uh, I wanted to ask you if you were evaluating and putting at the top of the list the number one concern besides education, because that will always be number one with me, uh, where our biggest mistake has occurred, uh, are we weak at politics or are we more weaker at economics? And I, I thoroughly believe that we have gone backwards as far as economic empowerment is, and this country is about economics. Politics don't run anything. Businesses do. That's why GM is being bailed out and everybody else is being bailed out because the government don't produce anything. And so the misnomer, misnomer, if you will, about how the world really operates, especially uh, amongst blacks, in understanding economic empowerment versus political positions. Any thoughts on that? Um, well... I, I guess I don't have any, any deep thoughts on it because I, I have to say I focus mostly on the politics of it. But I, I would say that if you look at the number of people, I mean, there, there, there are breakthroughs which are happening in the business world every day. The new head of Xerox is a black woman named Ursula Burns. Um, the, the head of American Express, last I checked, even though things are kind of dicey in that industry. <laughs> Uh, is, is an African-American named Ken Chenault. There, there, are, there are breakthroughs happening on that level. I think what you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, is when you go farther down, the economic breakthroughs and who owns, who controls. Now, understand that for years and years, that was achieved through politics. That's what patronage was all about. That's how people got power. That was the deal. But then, of course, it turned out that patron, all patronage wasn't good patronage, and then who fell first? The people who were last to the party. So it's more complicated than that. I, I, do, I don't think you can argue with the fact that economic strength is a, is a core strength of any community right after education, but the two things are not disconnected. Um, I sort of wanted to, I want to ask what may seem like a silly question. Given, no silly questions tonight. Well, well given the whole purpose of tonight's event, which is can, you, can we take a few moments to, I think we sort of open the conversation with the assumption that it's a good thing to talk about race. Um, and beyond equality, which is very important, I sort of want to revisit the idea about what's the value of talking about race and having those um, interracial, um, intra and interracial conversations about race. I had an experience where um, I was in my home newspaper. My, my home is closer to Cincinnati, Ohio, very different from Baltimore. And I was reminded how different Cincinnati is from Baltimore when the, the article opened with Tara Andrews, who grew up in mostly white Hamilton. And I remember reading that line and wincing 
and then reading the rest of the article. And then I got to the end of the article and started reading the blogs or the comments to the article, and it's like folks latched onto that first line. They never read the rest of the article. They couldn't tell you what the rest of the article said. They, they got that first line, and they went off. And I'm sort of, I've gotten used to the discomfort around race in Baltimore, predominantly black Baltimore, very political Baltimore, D.C. area. When those conversations happen in places like southern Ohio, southern Indiana, Appalachia, Kentucky, they, they, they look very, very different. Here it's a discomfort. There it's like hostile. <laughs> and well, can even part get of violent. the hostility was, and I'm, I didn't see the article, but what was the article about? What did her race have to do with it? Well, it was, it, was, it was in reference to an essay that I had written about why I wanted to be president. And my awakening to wanting to be president came from my viewing the way black boys were being treated differently by law enforcement in my town versus white boys. So that was part of my essay. So that's how she led, that's how she chose to lead into the article about the essay. Well, you were going to get the bad, bad blog comments anyway, because it was going to be about race. I mean, <laughs> right. understand that's blog comments. Yeah, aren't, so you right, can't right. judge, yeah, judge really. by but that. But this is this is one of my mentees, Tara mm -hmm. Tara Andrews, and I really appreciate your question. Like, what's the value of it? Why should we even assume that it's valuable? And I really believe that um, not confronting the reality of race, racism, our history is killing us. I mean, I, I really think people die from this. I mean, I, I, when I die, I don't mean, you know, we get stressed. And, I mean, violence happens because, you know, and, I, and I've, I've written a book about lynching and I've read maybe hundreds of lynching accounts. So I'm very, you know, I, and I teach a class about genocide, you know, not like back in the day. I mean, like now. So I'm very conscious of the way in which how toxic silence can be, um, particularly around the creation of an other. You know, when, we, when, when secretly in our church or in our community or in our family, we talk about those people as being like that, somehow less than us. It's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. You know, there are a lot of people have been saying about, you know, Barack, they're afraid, you know, we, as we should in this country. We, we have a certain history, and so we fear that he'll be harmed. You know what I fear? I fear that other people will be harmed. I think he's got the secret service. I think that, you know, there are some crazy people out there. They're not, they're not the majority by any stretch of the imagination. But I think we've got to get things on the table so people can see things for what they are, so, so that we can really look at what's in front of us and understand what's the boogeyman and what's real. Because our silence has made us, by the way, blacks and whites, create some boogeymen that don't exist. And in order to free ourselves from some of the fear and to free ourselves from some of the misunderstanding, we have, to, we have to get to the point where we're mature enough to get it out there. Because once we get it out there, what we're going to discover is, I think, we have some stuff, you know, we have some issues, you know, but the issues that we have are manageable. I, I really, that's why I'm hopeful, because I really believe they're manageable. A lot of people saw that with the election of Barack Obama. It's not like everybody who voted for him, you know, loves black people. They voted for him because they said, you know, I think this guy can do the job. Guess what? We're in trouble. This guy can do the job, right? That's the first step towards slaying the boogeyman. You know, it's, it, he's not going to, you know, make us all, you know, do something crazy because he's black. I think he can do the job. So I think it's going to free us um, just to, to be the best that we can be and free us to really take advantage. You know, every time some employer, you know, takes a resume and puts it to the side because the name on it is Keisha and doesn't interview her, he's losing the possibility of the person who's the best person for the job. You know, so it's, there are real practical reasons why I think we've got to get past this. 
I've been told that sadly we have time for one more question, oh. and this is the lucky patient woman. <laughs> Better be a good one. No pressure. Okay, I, I was going to try to uh, sneak in two or three things here. <laughs> one of them being that um, the effects. Hold of the mic like this. Oh, closer. One of them being the effect of slavery that a lot of Americans don't want to talk about and deny the fact that wealth was not built for black people because their wealth was given away. And they, you know, I finished reading um, not too long ago the Hemeses. The, uh, and you think about this man who was the bulwark of, of American independence holding on to people that he knew were very smart, capable. He used them in many ways, and still he would not free them. So I think one of the things that Americans don't want to talk about is the effect of slavery, that that effect is still being felt. I come from a family that also talks a lot about race. We always have, you know, interesting discussions, but I don't think the country wants to talk about the effects. Well, and if I may just, if I could, can, if I could just yeah. jump in, because I mean, I, I think that it's possible there are a lot of, you may not like my answer, actually, don't applaud yet. We, are, as a country, don't much like looking backward. We don't. We don't much like being reminded of the things that we did which were less than admirable. Um, I could tell, I bet you half the people in this room are thinking to themselves, I wish they would just get over it. Now, I don't think, I think any, you can be doomed to repeat your history if you don't know it. So there's no question that we have to understand it, we have to know it. But the question is, how do you take that knowledge? How do you take that and use it as an underpinning instead of the end of the conversation? I was wait, waiting to see where your question was going to go, because if at the end of that, we don't talk about slavery, then we're stuck. But if it then goes forward to, and what do we do to apply what we don't know, what we won't talk about, to where we go next, then you have an opening for a conversation. That's inviting people in instead of shutting them out. I agree with that, but do you think Americans are ready to talk about it? Well, this is one of those, I mean, I, I teach a course in which I look at, you know, genocide, whether it's Rwanda, Bosnia, I look at slavery, I look at the, you know, so we, we look at the stolen children in Australia, we go all over the world, and that's one of the values of the course is for people to understand that, you know, it's not just you that's under the spotlight, <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a phenomenon, you know, the, these, the, this level of human rights violation, if you begin to talk about Native Americans, it gets even more, you know, so, so I understand what you're saying. Um, I do kind of like Gwen's point about kind of to what end, because um, I think that Americans writ large are not ready for the big seminar on slavery. You're absolutely right. No, in, the, in that, you know, it's coming at them and it's to be resisted. And for me, I'm really interested in what is the context, you know, less in kind of where we take it, but what is the context in which we can talk about history in a way that people can hear it. With you, The Hemingses of Monticello, which is um, Annette Gordon-Reed's masterful book, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award this year, but of course her earlier book should have won the National Book Award, but people weren't ready to accept that, in fact, Sally Hemings' daughter was, or son was, Thomas Jefferson's child, so she didn't win it that year, but now we had the DNA test and now she won it. That's all on the side. 
um, she was here at the Enoch Pratt Library, and, um, and she's just been collecting accolades. But, you know, this is an 800-page, because she knew to, to go there, to go, you know, to really deal with Thomas Jefferson, you, she had to go there. She had to go, to, and, and as a black woman, right, she had to go, because Andrew Weinsack's book, An Imperfect God, which I think is required reading, An Imperfect God, George Washington and His Slaves, it's, it's, it's required. You must, if you think you're a student of American history, you must read this book. What I find so fascinating about reading these books is you finish reading these books, and then you say to yourself, now what am I going to do with these two men? Because you, I'm reading the book, and there are things about them that are very interesting, very valuable. You can see intellect. You can see all that, and yet you see exactly what you said, holding people in bondage. You read some of these passages in George Washington's letters, and you know, in terms of how he's kind of you know, to the line, figuring out you know, what slaves are going to wear and what... And you're just saying, gosh, how can this exist together? The value of it for me and where we go with it is that it shows us that that's what it looks like. People want to believe that racism is Bull Connor in a hat, in a black and white film, you know, and it was. But the reality is understanding how race permeates and how people can even unwittingly participate, right, in racism is to understand that it's always been complex, it's always lived within people who were great in other ways. And that's, to me, the value of understanding that history. That's the context in which I teach it, to get my students to sit back and say, wow, you don't get to just point your finger and say, ooh, that was Thomas Jefferson, ooh, that was George Washington, because then I can take you over to Rwanda, and we can do it again in a different context. You understand what I'm saying? So that's the context in which I think it's really valuable and important. What a great note on which to end. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Both, both Miss Ifus, we were honored that you would start this series for us. And thank you to the Open Society Institute. The next Big event will be in the fall, but you will now be able to have your book signed and answer more questions right over here. Thank you all for coming. The book signing will take place right behind me in the podium. There's right behind there. <laughs>